Greetings one and all, Laszlo Montgomery here with the exciting conclusion of our series produced for you specially to commemorate the 10th anniversary of the China History Podcast. Today's episode is going to run a little long, hope you don't mind, but as you can see, still kept the regular list pricing. Well, Nixon had landed, he shook hands with Joe and Lai, and now the show was about to begin. A lot of time had passed since Nixon had sent that memo to Henry Kissinger, requesting him to start exploring ways to normalize relations with Beijing. Over the past six episodes, we have seen how this most able of statesmen took the lead in making this initiative happen. Now it was time to make everything official. The big question on the way over the Pacific was whether or not Nixon would actually get the chance to meet Mao. This was by no means assured, mainly because Mao wasn't doing too well. And as I mentioned, you never knew if he was going to be healthy enough to meet anyone publicly, let alone the uh, leader of the free world. After the Lin Biao incident, you could say, well, Mao lost a bit of face there. This didn't look good. His second in command, the man behind the little red book, turning on him? And when Chairman Mao tried to start making amends, one of the signature acts of contrition he performed was to attend the funeral of Marshal Chen Yi, a month prior to Nixon's visit. And already not very well, Chairman Mao went out into the freezing cold of the Beijing winter to the funeral home to pay his respects to one of modern China's better leaders, not to mention a great revolutionary soldier. And at Marshal Chen Yi's funeral, he attempted to put on a good show in front of everyone, you know, who had all been burned by Mao in one form or another. And he caught a dose of pneumonia that pretty much almost killed him. A lifetime of chain-smoking didn't pair well with that malady. And like I said, whether or not Mao would be well enough to meet Nixon was iffy at best. Chairman Mao had actually passed out and nearly died nine days before on February 12th, he had a team of doctors and nurses who attended to him around the clock. And his room resembled a hospital ward with all this medical equipment and supplies everywhere. The stories abound about what an uncooperative and cranky patient Mao was and how much he distrusted all medicines. None of this, on top of his excessive and downright abusive lifestyle he lived, could have been good for him. His room was filled with books and papers and sort of resembled a hospital room and a library combined into one. Mao was briefed on every detail as it happened. He knew exactly when Air Force One had landed, when they got to Diaoyutai, and were safe in Villa Number 18, and the lavish welcome lunch, and, well, wouldn't you know it, as luck would have it, at this hour, on February 21st, 1972, The chairman felt up for a meeting, and the way Mao was these days, even though he still had four more years to live, he knew he had better grab the chance while he had the strength. So it had only been right after Nixon had gotten to his room and was just about to hop in the shower when word came that the chairman would see him now. That was fast. The presidential delegation scrambled, got ready. I mean, this was was a big photo op coming up. They hopped into their limo and were taken to Zhongnanhai, to Mao's study come bedroom. And that's where the famous handshake took place, and that famous photo. Only 15 minutes had been planned for this meet and greet, but as things turned out, Mao was having a good day, and the momentous talk lasted 
whole hour. Nixon was Nixon, politician, salesman, and statesman. He tried to engage Mao in substance, but Mao wouldn't be sucked into anything substantive. That was for Joe and all his underlings to deal with. The emperor only dealt with the big picture and would make a number of utterances that would be quoted and would clearly show favor on this common endeavor between China and the U.S. After a bit of light banter, Nixon tried to explain to Mao what he was setting out to do by coming to Beijing. He said, quote, I hope to talk with the prime minister and later with the chairman about issues like Taiwan, Vietnam, and Korea. I also want to talk about, and this is very sensitive, the future of Japan, the future of the subcontinent, and what India's role will be, and on the broader scene, the future of U.S.-Soviet relations. Because only if we see the whole picture of the world and the great forces that move the world will we be able to make the right decisions about the immediate and urgent problems that always completely dominate our vision. Chairman Mao, all those troublesome problems, I don't want to get into very much. I think your topic is better. Philosophic questions. President Nixon, well, for example, Mr. Chairman, it is interesting to note that most nations would approve of this meeting, but the Soviets disapprove. The Japanese have doubts, which they express, and the Indians disapprove. So we must examine why and determine how our policies should develop to deal with the whole world, as well as the immediate problems such as Korea, Vietnam, and, of course, Taiwan. Chairman Mao. Yes, I agree. President Nixon. We, for example, must ask ourselves, uh, again, in the confines of this room, why the Soviets have more forces on the border facing you than on the border facing Western Europe. We must ask ourselves, what is the future of Japan? Is it better? Here I know we have disagreements. Is it better for Japan to be neutral? Totally defenseless? Or is it better for a time for Japan to have some relations with the United States? The point being, I'm talking now in the realm of philosophy, in international relations there are no good choices. One thing is sure, we can leave no vacuums, because they can be filled. The Prime Minister, for example, has pointed out that the United States reaches out its hands and that the Soviet Union reaches out its hands. The question is, which danger the People's Republic faces, whether it is the danger of American aggression or Soviet aggression? These are hard questions, but we have to discuss them. End quote. Well, to this, Mao retorted, quote, At the present time, the question of aggression from the United States or aggression from China is relatively small. That is, it could be said that this is not a major issue, because the present situation is one in which a state of war does not exist between our two countries. You want to withdraw some of your troops back on your soil? Ours do not go abroad. Therefore, the situation between our two countries is strange, because during the past 22 years, our ideas have never met in talks. Now the time is less than 10 months since we began playing table tennis, if one counts the time since you put forward your suggestion at Warsaw, it's less than two years. Our side also is bureaucratic in dealing with matters. For example, you wanted some exchange of persons of a personal level, things like that, also trade. But rather than deciding that, we stuck with our stand that without settling major issues, there is nothing to do with smaller issues. I myself persisted in that position. Later on, I saw you were right. 
and we played table tennis. The Prime Minister said this was also after President Nixon came to office. The former President of Pakistan introduced President Nixon to us. At that time, our ambassador to Pakistan refused to agree on our having contact with you. He said it should be compared whether President Johnson or President Nixon would be better. But President Yahya Khan said the two men cannot be compared, that these two men are incomparable. He said that one was like a gangster. Uh, He meant President Johnson. I don't know how he got that impression. We on our side, we were not very happy with that president either. We were not very happy with your former presidents, beginning from Truman through Johnson. We were not very happy with these presidents, Truman and Johnson. In between, there were eight years of a Republican president. During that period, probably you hadn't thought things out either. Nixon replied, quote, uh, Mr. Chairman, I am aware of the fact that over a period of years, my position with regard to the People's Republic was one that the chairman and prime minister totally disagreed with. What brings us together is a recognition of a new situation in the world and a recognition on our part that what is important is not a nation's internal political philosophy. What is important is its policy towards the rest of the world and towards us. That is why, and this point I think can be said to be honest, we have differences. The Prime Minister and Dr. Kissinger discuss these differences. It also should be said, uh, looking at the two great powers, the United States and China, we know China doesn't threaten the territory of the United States. I think you know the United States has no territorial designs on China. We know China doesn't want to dominate the United States. We believe you too realize the United States doesn't want to dominate the world. Also, or maybe you don't believe this, but I do, neither China nor the United States, both great nations, want to dominate the world. Because our attitudes are the same on these issues, we don't threaten each other's territories. Therefore, we can find common ground, despite our differences, to build a world structure in which both can be safe to develop in our own way, on our own roads. That cannot be said about some other nations in the world, end quote. Well, it was less than an hour into this historic gathering, and Mao was starting to fade and feel a bit irritable when he looked at Zhou Enlai and let him know he had had enough of this for the time being. The premier deftly brought the curtain down on the meeting. Before they said their goodbyes, however, Nixon looked Mao Zedong in the eye and said, quote, I would like to say as we finish, Mr. Chairman, We know you and the Prime Minister have taken great risks in inviting us here. For us also, it was a difficult decision. But having read some of the Chairman's statements, I know he is one who sees when an opportunity comes, that you must seize the hour and seize the day. I would also like to say in a personal sense, and this to you, Mr. Prime Minister, you do not know me, and since you do not know me, you shouldn't trust me. You'll find I never say anything I cannot do, and I will always do more than I could say. On this basis, I want to have frank talks with the chairman, and of course with the prime minister. The chairman's life is well known to all of us. He came from a very poor family to the top of the most populous nation in the world, a great nation. Well, my background is not so well known. I also came from a very poor family and to the top of a very great nation. History is brought us together. The question is whether we, with different philosophies, but both with feet on the ground, having come from the people, 
can make a breakthrough that will serve not just China and America, but the whole world in the years ahead. And that is why we are here. End quote. Well, as the meeting broke up and everyone gathered their things, Mao's attendants helped the chairman slowly to his feet, and the two leaders shook hands, said their goodbyes. And as they left, Mao had told Nixon, you know, he wasn't feeling too well these days, to which Nixon said, no, no, the, the, the chairman looked well. But Mao only mumbled to Nixon that appearances could be deceiving. And then they left. The next stop was the big banquet. When Nixon and Mao were having their historic moment, dawn was soon about to break on the U.S. East Coast. The next big extravaganza to this spectacle was the state banquet in the Great Hall of the People. This was going to be one long photo op for the cameras, filled with toasts and diplomatically correct words. It really was a love fest by this time, all captured live and in color and broadcast around the world. Nixon had been practicing, you know, using chopsticks, and now the time came to see if all that practice made perfect. Following the banquet, over the next couple days, there was the obligatory visit to the Great Wall and the Ming Tombs, Forbidden City, and cultural and athletic performances. Quote, I think you would have to conclude that this is a Great Wall, and it had been built by a great people. End quote. This is what Nixon said, and was rather representative of the kind of talk going back and forth. All the hard work had already been taken care of by Henry Kissinger, Joe Enlai, and their respective teams. And it wasn't just the American and foreign press covering this event. The Chinese were milking it also for all it was worth. This was on TV and also on the front pages of the People's Daily. As far as how all the discussions will be held, let me quote Kissinger from his book on China. Quote, The substantive issues had been divided up into three categories, the first being the long-term objectives of the two sides and their cooperation against hegemonic powers, a shorthand for the Soviet Union without the invidiousness of naming it. This would be conducted by Joe and Nixon and restricted staffs, which included me. We met for at least three hours every afternoon. Second, a forum for discussing economic cooperation and scientific and technical exchanges was headed by the foreign ministers of the two sides. Lastly, there was a drafting group for the final communique headed by Vice Foreign Minister Chiao Guanhua and myself. The drafting meetings took place late at night after the banquets. End quote. The next morning after the banquet, before Nixon and Joe had their first formal sit-down, Kissinger met with Joe in guest villa number two to work out some last-minute matters that had suddenly arose, mostly related to protocol and also related to the touchy subject that the Department of State, from Secretary William P. Rogers on down the line, had been completely left in the dark. Even this late in the game, State still had no idea how much had already been discussed and finalized, and that they had been kept out of the loop again. With all these bitter feelings hanging out there on the American side, Joe had one more thing to be concerned about. The first meeting between Nixon and Joe was held in the Fujian Room of the Great Hall of the People, same place Kissinger had spent so much time negotiating. All the hours and hours of work carried out by Joe and Kissinger 
It all came down to this. Besides Nixon and Kissinger were, of course, Winston Lord and John H. Holdridge, both NSC staff and Kissinger's right-hand men throughout these negotiations. On the Chinese side, besides Zhou, were the same team as before, including Chiao Guanhua, who was key in finalizing the Shanghai communique with Kissinger. These meetings were meant to finalize the details that had pretty much already been finalized. Everything Kissinger and Joe had discussed over all the hours of conversation was getting one last run through the sieve to see if there was anything at all that needed to be picked out. The next morning, Chao Guanhua continued with his fellow negotiator in this communique, Dr. Henry A. Kissinger, each side trying to put the finishing touches in such a way that it might display their side in a more positive light. To read through the transcripts and see the level of detail that they went into of every word and every line and the explaining and the backtracking, you got to read it to believe it. It said a lot about Joe Enlai and Henry Kissinger, two truly great intellects and negotiators, both with a strong knowledge of history, and one of them a frequent participant in that history. These meetings continued and more details were worked out and the subjects of secondary importance were addressed at the ministerial secretarial level. After 23 years of no diplomatic relations, there was a lot of catching up to do. As Nixon had said sometime during the proceedings, quote, we do have differences and we cannot build a bridge spanning 16,000 miles in 23 years in one week, end quote. After all those discussions from the 22nd to the 25th of February, now on February 26, 1972, at Beijing Airport's VIP Lounge, Zhou, Ji Pengfei, Chiao Guanhua, Xiong Xianghui, and Zhang Wenjin, Zhou's A-team throughout the negotiations, they were all present. And with Nixon and Kissinger were all the president's men, Bob Haldeman, Dwight Chapin, Ronald Ziegler, Holdridge, Lord, and a then 29-year-old Mr. Charles W. Freeman, another one of the great diplomats of our age and most eloquent of writers and speakers. He was the interpreter. The Beijing part of the trip was over, though no one had chiseled the Shanghai communique in stone yet, it was pretty much a done deal. And as they boarded their flight to Hangzhou, the heavy lifting had all been done already. Nixon had walked down the Great Wall and seen the Ming tombs. Next up was Westlake. Sightseeing, more photo op, and the obligatory dinner at Lo Wai Lo. When everyone was assembled in Hangzhou, while Zhou and Nixon hung back, everyone else met between 10.20 p.m., and 1.40 in the morning, still parsing words, tedious back and forth regarding words that had their own particular nuances in each other's languages. Yet the meaning of the document they were negotiating had to be the same. The next stop after Hangzhou was Shanghai, the final stop on the tour. Tensions by this time were still really running deep in the American camp as the extent to which the Department of State had all along been left out of the negotiations had fully come to light. The strain in the American ranks began to be palpable. 
this matter was a whole other sidebar going on during the Nixon visit. Let's just say the State Department, uh, they were more sympathetic to uh, Taiwan's situation and wasn't so eager to give them away this easily. The fact that they were purposely omitted from all the earlier talks going back to 1970, well, it created even more distrust and discord among those at State. Zhou Enlai knew what was going on. Of course, he had been briefed on the tension happening on the American side. The heat had risen to a degree where Joe Enlai became worried it might throw a last-minute wrench into the whole thing. So Joe Enlai, against all established diplomatic protocol, went and paid a personal visit to Secretary of State William P. Rogers' room to try and calm the waters. That he, China's premier and second-in-command after Mao and Rogers, merely a man of ministerial rank, met... Well, that was highly unusual. And Zhou wasn't just premier of China. He was a historical person already, in his own time. He didn't have to do this. But Zhou Enlai was a big-picture kind of a man all his life, calling on William P. Rogers personally like he was doing, using the high value of his position, his face and charisma. Joe knew the act wouldn't be lost on a career diplomat like Rogers. He sat and chatted for a while, offered his apologies and hopes that the secretary would support this diplomatic effort. And then when it was all over and Joe started walking towards the door, he was able to bring Rogers over to his side. And when they departed, there were smiles all around. This potential bomb had been diffused. All that remained was the Shanghai communique late in the morning of February 27th. They were still going at it. But now, however, the changes were mostly all nickel and dime. Delete this, change this word, add a comma here. And keep in mind, this entire time, all the transcripts, memoranda, all the myriad of changes made to the communique, well, this was only 1972. WordStar was still six years in the future. WordPerfect, seven years in the future. Multimate, Microsoft Word. Didn't come around till around 1982. Everything was typed. You want to delete one word, add a comma, you had to type it. It was excruciating. The Shanghai Communique, or in its full form, the Joint Communique of the United States of America and the People's Republic of China, was to be the joint statement that pretty much encapsulated the whole raison d'etre of the visit and laid forth the official policy agreed by both sides. In its final form, the communique promised the eventual normalization of diplomatic relations between the two countries, which, of course, happened in January 1979. It called for a progressive withdrawal of U.S. military forces from Taiwan and said that the future of Taiwan was an internal Chinese matter. There were a total of 16 points listed on the document. The communique reviewed the various details of the trip and sort of recapped what had happened up to now. Then came point six, the point Mao insisted on, where, you know, the Chinese inserted their party rant against imperialism and oppressing the peoples and all that jazz. They also gave their stance on the Korean Peninsula, Jammu and Kashmir, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and of course their old nemesis, Japan. The United States, however was not singled out by name in China's point six. In point seven, it was the U.S. turn to state their position. 
We spoke about peace and freedom and the things we held dear. We mentioned mutual respect and no one should push anyone around and there should be open communication and understanding. The U.S. also stated its positions with respect to the same areas of conflict that China mentioned. Points 11 and 12 were the main thing. In point 11, China stated their position on Taiwan and stated it clearly. This was the main event here. Quote, The Taiwan question is the crucial question obstructing the normalization of relations between China and the United States. The government of the People's Republic of China is the sole legal government of China. Taiwan is a province of China which has long been returned to the motherland. The liberation of Taiwan is China's internal affair, which no other country has the right to interfere. And all U.S. forces and military installations must be withdrawn from Taiwan. The Chinese government firmly opposes any activities which aim at the creation of One China, One Taiwan, One China, Two Governments, two Chinas, an independent Taiwan, or advocate that, quote, the status of Taiwan remains to be determined. Then, point 12, we gave our position on Taiwan, quote, the United States acknowledges that all Chinese on either side of the Taiwan Strait maintain there is but one China, and that Taiwan is a part of China. The United States government does not challenge that position. It reaffirms its interest in a peaceful settlement of the Taiwan question by the Chinese themselves. With this prospect in mind, it affirms the ultimate objective of the withdrawal of all U.S. forces and military installations from Taiwan. In the meantime, it will progressively reduce its forces and military installations on Taiwan as the tension in the area diminishes. End quote. There was more after that concerning trade, friendly relations, and, of course, the last point, number 16, that simply stated, quote, President Nixon, Mrs. Nixon, and the American Party expressed their appreciation for the gracious hospitality shown them by the government and people of the People's Republic of China, end quote. And that was that. February 28th, they all said goodbye, and the American side flew back to the USA. Now came the time for the Nixon administration to face their critics back home who were sure to attack them for selling out our old ally, Taiwan. But despite the criticism and the attacks, Nixon weathered it okay. The momentum was simply too great in favor of all the potential opportunities that lay ahead for U.S.-China relations. In the bubbly enthusiasm of this moment, America's embryonic China dreams were just starting to form. It would take seven more years before official relations began following Deng Xiaoping's visit in January 1979. Then the China dreams really began to take shape and form. Mao Zedong wasn't immune to criticism either. He had to face a lot of anger from his allies, too. Albania was a very close friend of China, and the only communist state that had their own relationship with China that wasn't controlled by the Soviets. The Albanians were hardcore back then, and they just really gave Mao an airfall for selling out to the American imperialists. Total sellout. The North Vietnamese government, too. They weren't happy about this either. And although they called their own shots and didn't dance to Mao's tune by any means, they knew 
with China and America in bed together. Well, it wasn't good for them, geopolitically. But Mao prevailed. Both he and Premier Zhou Enlai were able to rid their government of all the Lin Biao radical elements and had the leftists on the run. It would still take four years before the Gang of Four would be overthrown, but Mao got his way and those who had opposed his thinking were all purged. Soon afterwards, Taiwan was ousted from the UN and the US government did an end run around the Soviets and schooled them. Soviet hopes of Isolating China were now dashed. And another benefit Mao received from the visit of Nixon to China was that he gained all kinds of additional international prestige and legitimacy. Leaders from countries around the world, one by one, beat a path to Beijing to make nice and establish relations with the PRC. And if they were lucky, maybe get a photo with the chairman. The third world oppressed nations who had always looked to Mao as their spiritual leader really shook Mao down for aid money, which, you know, was little more than hush money to shut them up for the sin Mao had committed by cavorting with the imperialist camp. This really put quite a financial strain on China as they hardly had the hordes of foreign exchange like they do today. In his final banquet remarks, Nixon had called this, quote, the week that changed the world. It sounded like typical politicians bombast, but looking back 48 years later, in a way it did sort of change the world. Three months after he left China, Nixon and Brezhnev signed the Salt One Treaty, the first ever agreement to limit nuclear weapons and a major achievement in U.S.-Soviet relations. And a month after he signed SALT-1 in June 1972, the Watergate burglars were caught breaking into the Democratic National Committee headquarters. And despite this great triumph in Beijing in February of 1972, and then with the Soviets, what resulted from this break-in ended up eclipsing this great and historic moment in China and became the greater part of Nixon's political and historical legacy. Richard Nixon resigned the presidency on August 9, 1974, two and a half years since he had that magic moment in China that we've covered in this series. And here we will bring our little overview of the visit to China by Richard Milhouse Nixon in February 1972 to a close. In such poisonous times as now in the U.S.-China relationship, It's nice to look back on those days back in 1972 and reflect on that a bit and perhaps study what lessons, if any, we've all learned during this past half century of relations. As the Spanish-American philosopher George Santayana once famously said, quote, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. After all this vileness and indecorum, The threats, accusations ranging from deceptive to possibly true, and the sheer expressions of the worst insults, hatred, and invective having been hurled back and forth between the U.S. and PRC on social media platforms and and in the press, it might seem to some of us that, you know, where these relations are concerned, that this is the end. And maybe it is. If we knew back in 1971 what we know today, perhaps we might have done things differently. 
as far as how we engage China. Hard to say, yet here we are. Throughout this series, I've presented the story through the prism of today's challenges. Admittedly, after half a century of technological progress, we live in vastly different times today than what it was like in the early 70s. 2020 is a much more dangerous, complex, and malignant time than in 1972, which appears almost like an age of innocence now, looking back and comparing it to the complications of today's life and times. But even with all the bad vibes from 20 years of trying to block China's rise, the Korean War, the Cultural Revolution, Vietnam War, and the many potentially explosive incidents have happened, American and Chinese leaders still manage to find a way to bridge our differences. And since Nixon's visit to China, with almost half a century of mistakes and poor judgment and how both sides carried out their friendly relations, think how much smarter we all are today. Where there's a will, there's a way. Come on, yo jirja, shi jing chang. Okay, that's all I got for you. We'll be back with the History of Xinjiang Part 8 on schedule. This seven-part series on Nixon's visit to China was just a little something extra I wanted to give you all to mark the occasion of my 10 years in the podcasting biz. This is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from the city of Los Angeles, California, thanking everyone who has stuck with me the past 10 years and everyone else who has Climbed aboard the China History Podcast bandwagon since 2010. Everyone who has written to me over the years, all the donations, gifts, kind words, and friends I've made along the way. I thank you all. This has been a 10-year anniversary special deluxe edition. Hope you all liked it and will consider joining me next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.